Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Now, this is going to be different than any podcast you've ever heard because we're going back in time a little bit, and we're actually going to hear one of the great theological voices of the last two or three hundred years. Some say the greatest theologian since the Reformation, Karl Barth. How are we going to listen to Karl Barth? Well, these were from lectures that he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1962, his one and only visit to the United States. And uh, we've got to warn you up front, uh, this is a little bit of difficult listening because Bart did not know English very well. He learned English by reading the mystery stories of Agatha Christie. And uh, he, he seemed to be struggling with a little cough or cold along the way. But I want to tell you, it's worth listening to this just to hear the voice of Karl Bart and what he has to say. Now, who is Karl Bart? To help answer that question, I've invited my colleague, Dr. Mark Genolette, who's here in the studio with me, to talk a little bit about Bart and why we should be interested in him. Welcome, Mark, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Who was Karl Bart? Well, Karl Bart was a Swiss theologian that lived in the early part of the 20th century, all the way up until 1968, I believe, and um, had a profound impact on. Um, 20th century theology, and I don't think it's an overstatement or hyperbolic to claim at Bard as being the most important theologian of the 20th century. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was always right, mm. um, but as far as being an important voice who shaped a whole generation of of theological thought and, and a whole a whole school of, of uh, researchers after him, I think Bard's influence is enormous. So um, he, he taught at the University of Basel. Mm-hmm. Um, for for most of his academic career, having been expelled from Germany during the the rise of National Socialism, and he um, ended his career at Basel as well, and and drew students, international students uh, from all across the world. So, you know, Bart's legacy is something that continues to live with us. I lived in Switzerland for one year, uh, not in Basel, but I had the privilege of visiting Basel and actually taking a course there with Jan Lockmann, huh. who was his successor. Huh. And so he would meet once a week uh, and offer an English-speaking seminar, as Bart himself did near the end of his life, uh, to theological students. And it was wonderful kind of walking in the footsteps of Bart a little bit and visiting his home, which you can still go and see. It's now the Bart Archief, where his works are collected and edited and made available. Now, Bart was a pastor, wasn't he? He did not have a a doctorate in theology. He was a pastor. And being a pastor was a very important th- uh, vocation in his becoming a theologian. Say a little bit about that. That's right. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you look at the way in which even Bart titled his magnum opus, I mean, the church dogmatics. He thought of the of the task of doing Christian theology as something that is done within the life of the church and for the sake of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really was born out of the anvils of his own pastoral crisis that he had coming out of really the best of the German liberal theological tradition, mm-hmm. having been schooled in that. So we think about names like Wilhelm Hermann and Albrecht Ritschel. Hermann Gunkel, Adolf von Harnack, these were, these were Bart's teachers. We read them now, but they were, they were his teachers. And I think Bart found on the hard way that the liberal theology that he had been taught actually didn't, was rather vacuous when it came to the to time to prepare a sermon for the pulpit. Yeah. So as he pastored in a small town in Saffinville, 
he had a crisis of vocation, I believe. And, and, I've, and if my memory serves me correctly, I think Bart said he sat under an apple tree with uh, the, the epistle to the Romans in one hand and, and a notebook in the other. And, and the pages of scripture began to witness to uh, Bart about um, the centrality of God and, and the centrality of the gospel for pastoral work. And he talked about discovering a strange new world within the Bible. Strange new world. And that world was no longer the mirror of the moral self. That world that you find in the Bible is the world of God, and we're invited into that. Um, so this, these had it had a significant and profound impact on the way in which Bart thought about theology, but that came out of the crisis of being a pastor. How do I preach? How do I give good news? How do I say, "Thus saith the Lord"? And um, and that was a was a bombshell. Well, you know, he's been controversial uh, in North America and elsewhere, of course, but particularly in North America among evangelicals. Uh, and yet, uh, one of his best-known books, the, in fact, uh, the book that contains the lecture we're going to listen to a <laughs> right. part of, is called Evangelical Theology. Say a little bit about that. Well, for Bart, evangelical theology, as someone who was trained in the German theological tradition, for him, evangelical is, is a kind of Protestant a theology that centers around an understanding of the gospel as shaped by the Reformation tradition. Um, and I think it's fair enough to say, you know, Karl Barth was not an American evangelical. He probably wasn't as aware of the critical issues that were at play in this continent during that time. And so there could be some disconnect, I think, as people try to talk to one another and maybe the conversations flew past one another. Now, the other thing, too, about Karl Barth is he wrote an awful lot. Mm. Um, I mean, you think about a whole, you know, Church Dogmatics 1-2 is a massive volume on the Word of God. Um, well, you know, when you say a lot, sometimes you can say things that if taken out of context can be misunderstood. And I warn people, you know, be, be careful with any great thinker to reduce them to a bumper sticker. You know, yeah. if you hear some, someone yeah. reduce Bart's thoughts on the Bible or Bart's thoughts on Christology are X, well, that's, that's probably too reductionistic. He's a symphonic and complex thinker and a beautiful thinker. And it doesn't mean he always gets it right and he can certainly be critiqued, but it's worth listening to him in that symphonic voice rather than reducing him to an aphorism or a maxim. You know, when I read Bart, and I read Bart a lot, I would say uh, devotionally because, mm -hmm. uh, he both has this very sharp, uh, acuity of thought. And at the same time, he does theology in the presence of the living mm -hmm. God. And he always sort of brings you to the throne of grace, it seems to me, in his writing. He's mm -hmm. writing with that perspective, uh, with eternity in mind. Yes. And so for that reason alone, I think he's worth commending Certainly. to theological students and pastors and folks because that's right. exactly what we want from theology. Right. It's not just a catalog of ideas, abstractions. Right. A philosophy of life. Uh, it, it really is wrestling mm. with the Holy Scriptures mm. uh, in the in the light of eternity, mm. in the power of the Spirit, and that's what Bart is talking about. Well, I agree. You may not. I, I doubt you do remember this, but when you interviewed me for my job here, now eleven years ago, we sat in this office, and you asked me. Mark, why do you like Karl Barth? I remember you asking me. Did I say you that? asked me that? And I said, I you wish. must have given a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I remember saying to you, if I and I probably won't get to this, say it the same way, but I remember saying, I wish I could give you a kind of detached one, two, three. Why I find him so compelling, but the answer is much more um, emotional and visceral. Uh, he ministers Jesus to me. And there's mm. something profound about the encounter that one experiences with the living Lord in the pages of his work. So I, I agree with you on that, yeah. Well, we're going to listen to a part of a lecture uh, given at Princeton in 1962 mm -hmm. 
Uh, and you can you can get the entire series of lectures from Princeton Theological Seminary. We're using this with their permission. Uh, and this one in particular is on the Spirit, on the Holy Spirit. The previous lectures, Bart has dealt with the Word of God. That's a major category in his thinking. Uh, the witnesses uh, to the Word, the community, that is the church, the body of Christ. And now he's talking about the Spirit, the Spirit that gives life to the Word of God in the community of faith. And so uh, we're, we're entering this uh, lecture kind of midstream, as it were, so just just prepare mm -hmm. to buckle your seatbelt <laughs> and listen hard, and you will learn a lot. And I think you'll be entranced to hear the voice of this great theologian speaking in 1962, Karl Barth. Mark, before we turn to the lecture... Sure. Tell us just a little bit about how he closes this particular lecture. That's fascinating. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Bart's learning English through reading Ag Agatha Christie, and I, I think he also used to read Louis L'Amour novels as well. And um, I think I've heard an anecdote where Karl Barth said, you know, I like to read Louis L'Amour novels because every once in a while it's good to see someone get shot. <laughs> um, you know, so he had a great sense of humor and a great interest in um, America and especially the American Civil War. Matter of fact, I, I, I wonder, and I think Eberhard Bush in his biography intimates this, that part of the draw for Luther to come to the States wasn't to lecture and hobnob with theologians, but was also to visit Civil War battle sites. Mm -hmm. So he ends the lecture on the Spirit with a reference to uh, General Stonewall Jackson's final words. I think something like, let us cross over the river and rest under the tree for a while. Or, let us cross the river and have a rest in the shade of the tree. In the shade of the tree. What, what a great way to end, the, end a lecture on the Spirit. Ed Bart said he didn't know whether Jackson was talking about the Potomac River or the Jordan River. But in either case, it works. That's right. Well, that's great. Let's go now to Princeton Theological Seminary, to the chapel there, and to the voice of Karl Barth. We will carefully refrain from speaking of a power presupposed either by us in these theological sentences of ours about the place of theology or by theology itself in the form of any further theological statement. All would be betrayed, all would be false if we were to speak in this way. Theology cannot lift itself as it were to be to by its own bootstraps to the level of God. It cannot presuppose anything at all concerning the foundation, authorization and destination of its statements. It can no presuppose and no help or buttress its statements from the outside, just as little from within its own sphere. If theology wished to provide a presupposition for its statements, this would mean that it wanted to secure them itself and its own work. It would presume it could and must secure them even if this presupposition were a tour de force 
a deus ex machina introduced in the form of a further theological statement. Precisely in this way, theology would sell its birthright for a mess of pottage. Theology can only do its work. It cannot, however, want to secure its operation. Its work can be well done only when all presuppositions are renounced which would try to secure it from without or within. What can be arbitrarily presupposed obviously stands at one's disposal where theology to presuppose power sustaining its statements and itself in the manner that mathematics presupposes the axioms supporting its theorems, then theology would assume power in its own right over that first and fundamental power. Theology could then muster that power for its self-protection or at least place it on God's duty. The true power which is powerful in its own right defies to be a potency which theology can possess and handle in its statements. Such presumed potency would be something like Münchhausen's own dresses by which he undertook to pull himself out of the bog. In one way or another, the very thing theology seeks, because in fact it needs it, would be lost whenever theology attempted to rely upon such an arbitrary presupposition. We have to speak, therefore, of the real power that is hidden in the theological sentences. Hidden, unattainable, unavailable, not only to the environment, but also to the very theology which serves the community. This is the power present and active in what the sentences of theology say in the history of salvation and revelation, in the hearing and speech of the biblical witnesses, in the being and act of the community summoned by them and also in the work of theology when it testifies to these things. But this power is also totally superior to theology itself. 
it sustains and activates that whole event from the history of Immanuel down to the little tale in whose telling theology also finally and at the last has its existence and activity. In the telling of this tale, that hidden power prevents and forbids the slightest attempt of building treacherous presuppositions. Most of all, it excludes the presumption that theology can vindicate itself. That power makes all arbitrary presupposing superfluous since it is a productive power which replaces all safeguards stemming from other sources. It is power that produces security, of course, but just because it is creative and sufficient power to do so, it is so effective that even the greatest theological master cannot, as it were, play with it, as though it were one of the most powerful of his chessmen, perhaps the queen. It is not decked out with the potentiality which the theologian knows and can exploit as though he could overlook its origin, significance and limits. The theologian does not have it in his control. This power is by no means a further theological assumption which he, much like a magician, could employ or also not employ according to need or desire, which he could manage in one way or another. He should be happy if, while brooding over his task and work, he hears the hidden power rushing and finds his sentence determined, ruled, and controlled by it. But he does not know whence it comes or whither it goes. He can only wish to follow its work, not to precede it. While he lets his thought and speech be controlled by it, he gladly renounces the temptation to exert control over that power. Such is the sovereignty of this power in the event of the history of Immanuel, such its sovereignty over and in the prophets 
and apostles, such its sovereignty in the gathering, upbuilding, and sending of the community, such is its sovereignty as a hidden power of the theological sentences that describe <coughs> and explain all these sentences such as we ventured in those three lectures. No wonder that from the viewpoint of an outsider these sentences seem to hover in midair supposedly crying for safeguards. Is this true? Only from the viewpoint of an outsider? And do these sentences only apparently hover? We must think further just at this point if we are to name this sovereign power by its true name? Is the phrase hovering in midair supposed to be something that characterizes theology only in its external aspect? Does it pertain to theology only apparently and as something probably harmful from which theology should be acquitted as soon as possible. Still, midair could above all mean flowing fresh, healthy air in contrast to all motionless, innocuous, and stagnant office or bedroom air. And to hover in midair could also mean to be moved, born and driven by this flowing air. Who could actually wish what it were other, that it were otherwise? It should be characteristic for theology to be born and driven by this powerful stern and stirring air, not hindered by any safeguards existing ultimately and decisively in this very open air as its habitat all this should characterize theology if for no other reason that such free mobility and movement are also the place of the community, of the church, which lives from God's word. On a higher level, such motion is the place of the witnesses who directly hear and transmit the word of God. And on a still higher level, 
It is also the place where the history of Emmanuel, of God's work, becomes God's word. All this takes place in the realm of that freely moved and moving air, the gentle or stormy wind, the divine spiratio and inspiratio. According to the Bible, God's spiration and inspiration are the effective power by which God discloses himself freely to men, making them accessible to himself and so on their part free for him. The biblical name of this sovereign effective power is Ruach or Pneuma, and both terms mean specifically mold and moving air. They mean breath, wind, probably also storm, and in this sense, spirit. In the Latin, spiritus, and also in the French, esprit, this significance is rather clearly recognizable. In English, the word should certainly not be reproduced by cost, which is fright in frightful proximity to spooks. <laughs> in German, Unfortunately, Geist is a word which makes the dynamic significance of the biblical term altogether unrecognizable. Our use of the term, however, will be taken from the biblical axiom where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The freedom of which we talk is God's freedom to disclose himself to men, to make men accessible to himself, and so to make them on their part free for him. The one who does that is the Lord God, who is the Spirit. There are also other spirits, those created good by God, such as the Spirit natural to man. Moreover, there are demonic, erring and disruptive spirits of annihilation, which deserve nothing else but to be driven out. But none of these are that sovereign power, of none of them, not even of the best among them, can it be said that where they are, there is that freedom. They must all be tested 
for the direction of their current, for their source from above or below. Above all, however, they must again and again be distinguished from the spirit that, working in that divine freedom, works human freedom. In the Nisine Creed, the spirit is called the Holy One, the Lord and Giver of Life who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. That is to say, he is himself God, the same one God, who is also the Father and the Son. He acts both as creator and as reconciler, as the Lord of the covenant, as this very Lord, however, <coughs> he now dwells, has dwelt, and will dwell in men. He dwells not only among them, but also in them by the enlightened power of his action. He is that flowing air and moving atmosphere in which men may live, think and speak wholly and entirely freed from presuppositions. They are men who know him and are known by him. Men called by him and obedient to him. His children begotten by his word. This was how, according to the second biblical saga of creation, God breathed into men the breath of life, man's own spirit. This is the way the Spirit spoke by the prophets. To use another phrase of the Nicene Creed, in this way John the Baptist saw the Spirit descend at the Jordan on the one who there, in solidarity with all sinners, accepted for himself the baptism of repentance. In this way, the Spirit was the origin of the existence of this Son in the world of men, who was conceptus de spiritus sancto, conceived of the Holy Spirit. In this way, he was the origin of the apostolate that proclaims this one, and also the origin of his community, the people of God. According to the book of Acts, a sound suddenly came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind and filled all the house in which they sat. By this power, the disciples were enabled to speak 
of the mighty works of God and were even immediately understood by those stranger, strangers who were present from every corner of the globe. This is how they spoke, even giving the impression of being drunk. And as a result of this spirare and inspirare, the word was accepted and understood by three thousand people. The Spirit himself was present. God the Spirit, the Lord who is the Spirit. This was his invasion, incitement and witness to what is in God and what has been given us by God. His power arousing and, beget and begetting the confession Jesus is Lord the spirit becomes a factor whose existence and action made possible and real and possible and real up to this very day the existence of Christianity in the world up to this very day the spirit calls into being the existence of every single Christian as a believing, loving, hoping witness to the word of God. The Spirit does this certainly and irresistibly. For to wish to stand him when he steps in and acts would be the one unforgivable sin but he alone does this. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ is not his. Romans 8, 9. It is clear that evangelical theology itself can only be pneumatic spiritual theology only in the realm of the Spirit's power can it become realizable and real as a humble, free, critical and happy science of the God of the Gospel. Only in the courageous confidence that the Spirit is the truth does theology simultaneously pose and answer question about truth. How does theology become theology? Human logic of the divine logos? The answer is that it does not become this at all, but theology finds that the spirit draws near and comes over it. And theology may then, without resisting, but also without assuming control over the spirit, simply rejoice and obey the spirit. Unspiritual theology 
whether it works its role in the pulpit or at the rostrum, on the printed page or in discussions among old or young theologians, unspiritual theology would be one of the most terrible of all terrible phenomena of this earthly veil. It would be so bad that it could not be compared with the words of even the worst political editorialist, the most wretched novels or films, or the most awful nocturnal disorder of the teenagers. <laughs> Theology becomes unspiritual when it lets itself be enticed or evicted from the freshly flowing air of the Spirit of the Lord in which it alone can prosper. The Spirit departs when theology enters rooms whose stagnant air automatically and fundamentally prevents it from being and doing what it could, may and must be and do. This unfortunate thing, thing can happen to it in two ways. The first possibility is that theology whether it is primitive or exceedingly cultivated, whether old-fashioned or occasionally newest of all, will be no doubt practiced more or less seriously, cleverly, and probably also piously, and in the process will certainly be also occasionally reminded of the problem of the Holy Spirit. Yet, this theology does not muster courage and assurance to meet itself fearlessly and unreservedly to the illumination, admonition, and consolation of the Spirit. It refuses to let itself be led by him into all truths giving him in its inquiry, thought and teaching the honor due to him, the spirit of the Father and the Son that was certainly poured out also. For theology's sake, over all flesh, now theology stands in out and out fear of him. There is such a thing as fear of the Holy Spirit. Now it plays dumb. Now it pretends to be better informed. 
Now it becomes obstinate in open opposition to him. Now it suspects the danger of fanaticism. As soon as the spirit begins to stir in it, now it rotates in circles of historicism, rationalism, moralism, romanticism, dogmatism or intellectualism, while round about lies green and pleasant pastures. When it poses and answers a question about truths on these tracks, theology certainly cannot be serviceable and helpful to the community which, like itself, totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Its effect will be just the opposite. If theology is, as it happens, in the same situation as those disciples of John in Ephesus, who reportedly did not even know that there was a Holy Spirit, then theology must inevitably throw the door wide open for every possible different strange spirit that aims at nothing else but to disturb and destroy the community, the church itself. An unpleasant reaction can and will not be lacking. Human criticism, mockery and accusation of theology, to be sure, cannot help it. When it is in this plight, but only the Spirit himself. He is the Holy One, the Lord, the giver of life, waits and waits to be received and used by theology just as by the community. He waits to receive from theology its due of adoration glorification. He expects from theology that it submit itself to the repentance, renewal, and reformation it affects. He waits to vivify and illuminate its sentences that, however rights I may be, are dead without the Spirit. The other possibility is <coughs> that theology may know only too well about the vital power of the Spirit, which is indispensable to Christianity, to every Christian, and to it as well. Just because of this familiarity, theology may once again not acknowledge the vitality and sovereignty of this power 
which defies all domestication. In such a case, theology forgets that this wind blows where it wills. The presence and actions of the Spirit are the grace of God who is always free, always superior, always giving himself undeservedly and incalculably. But theology now supposes it can deal with the Spirit as though it had rented him or even attained possession of him. It imagines that he is a power of nature that can be discovered, harnessed, and put to use like water, fire, electricity, atomic energy. Alike as a foolish church presupposes his presence and action in its own existence, in its offices and sacraments, ordinations, consecrations and absolutions, so a foolish theology presupposes him as a premise of its own sentences. He is thought to be one whom it knows and over whom it disposes. But a presupposed spirit is certainly not the Holy Spirit. And the theology that presumes to have him under control can only be unspiritual theology. The Holy Spirit is the vital power that shows and bestows free mercy on theology. And on the theologians, just as on the community and on every single Christian. Both of these remain utterly in need of him. Only the Holy Spirit himself can help a theology that is or has become unspiritual. Only he can help time and again become aware and conscious of the misery of its arbitrary tricks of controlling him. Only where he is sighed, cried, and prayed for does he become present and newly active. Veni Creator, Spiritus, come, O come, thou Spirit of life. Even the best theology cannot be anything more or better than this petition made in the form of resolute work. Theology can ultimately only take of one of those children who have neither bread nor fish, but doubtless 
a father who has thought and will give them his when they ask him in its total poverty evangelical theology is rich steadily born and upheld by its total lack of crutches. It is rich, born and upheld, since it lays hold on God's promise, clinging without skepticism, yet also without any presumption to the promise according to which not theology but the spirit searches all things even the deep things of God so much ladies and gentlemen as an introduction to evangelical theology. But one thing remains to be added. Allow me to say it a little enigmatically and cryptically in some words of the famous rebel general Stonewall Jackson <laughs> spoken at the hour of his death let us cross the river said he and nobody knows whether he meant the Potomac or the Jordan Maybe he meant both of them. Let us cross the river and have a rest in the shadow of the trees. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.